Thanks everyone for joining us today. My name is Steve Jagger. I graduated from Vancouver College in 1996 and I'm the co-president of the Alumni Association along with Mark Reed. The Vancouver College Alumni Association is a member-driven organization aimed at bringing all alumni together. We run uh, the annual alumni golf tournament, the Irish Christmas lunch, a fishing derby, hockey game, basketball, and much more. But with the COVID-19 situation, all of our normal activities are either canceled or postponed. Most of them are gonna be canceled. <laughs> um, so we decided we would set up a webinar series to take advantage of the internet, bring alumni together uh, from around the world and listen and engage with interesting alumni across a whole bunch of different topics. This is our second event. The first one we had Christian Covington who plays in the NFL and Pete Diakowski who used to play in the CFL doing the uh, the interview. A quick note on how the tickets work. We've been selling tickets for $10. 100 um, percent of that money is going to support Vancouver College alumni-owned restaurants. So there's two restaurants today that are being supported with the funds that came in. One is Pink Elephant and the other one is Heirloom. The idea is that we'll buy gift certificates from, um, from those restaurants with this money that gives the restaurant some money today and we will sit on those gift certificates and use them as prizes at the golf tournament or something next year. Um, before I introduce our guests, I wanted to let you know that you can ask questions anytime via the chat function in Zoom. It'll go directly to me. Not everybody sees your question, you don't want. Um, and I'll ask them uh, after Aiden's done his piece. So with that said, let me introduce our guests. So Aiden Sullivan is gonna be doing say, the interview today. Aiden's grad of 1996, is an expat with 15 years experience in China as a financial advisor, venture-backed entrepreneur, angel investor, and management consultant. He is currently based in Shanghai and is the managing director of China for Canadian Merchant Bank FM Resources. Next up, we've got uh, Rob LeBlanc. Rob graduated in 2001. He's an experienced early stage venture capital investor, social entrepreneur, and corporate finance, uh, finance practitioner currently living in, living in Johannesburg. Uh, having more than a decade of consulting, transacting, and entrepreneurial experience across North America, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and Africa, Rob has developed a unique expertise across SME venture capital lifestyle. Rob got his BCom from McGill, his MBA from Harvard, where he was named a Baker Scholar. Prior to that, Rob was selected 40th overall in the 2005 CFL draft and won the Grey Cup in 2005 in his rookie year. And finally, we've got Sunil. Sunil Gokhale uh, graduated in, in 1996 as well. He's the founding partner of Venture Souk. He's currently living in Dubai. Previously, he was the senior legal counsel to the Abu Dhabi Investment Council, a large sovereign wealth fund based in the UAE advising on global M&A, investment fund, and capital markets transactions. Prior to this, Sunil practiced in the corporate group of Allen and Overy's uh, Abu Dhabi office and at Blake Castles and Graydon in Toronto. Uh, Sunil has a JD from the University of British Columbia, a Master's of Science from the London School of Economics, and a BA from McMaster University. So with all that said, thank you guys for um, making this happen. And I will hand it over to Aiden to take us from here. Morning, gentlemen, and Semper Fi. Hope you're all doing very well wherever you are in the, uh, in the lockdown. Uh, great to catch up with all of you and looking forward to uh, hearing what, uh, what Rob and Sunil have to say. Um, so Steve gave a little bit of a background there, but if you guys don't mind, just quickly, uh, we'll start with you, Rob. 
um, let us know where you're living, how long you've been there, and what is your what is your family situation there? Cool, it's a pleasure. I guess speaking of family situation, I need to start by just being put on the record that I'm shocked that my dad's on the call. Uh, I didn't know he could use Zoom. Um, this is a first. So, hi, Dad. Um, it's hard enough to track you down in normal circumstances, so it's ironic that you're on this. But on that note, um, I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa. I've been here for eight years now, moved down in 2012 after my MBA. And I'm married with one son who's almost two and another baby on the way. Uh, my wife's about 20 weeks pregnant now. Oh, wow, nice. Uh, Sunil? Hey, uh, you know, much like Rob, uh, I noticed that Tosh Sangera and my brother Sandeep were both on the call who I didn't think could use as well. Um, so what up guys? Um, uh, I've been living in Dubai uh, for about nine years, uh, married with a, a young son, about two and a half. Awesome. And uh, just in terms of getting a little bit of context uh, in terms of Vancouver College and your experience at the school, uh, Sunil, what year did you arrive at, at uh, Vancouver College? Uh, I arrived uh, in grade eight. Um, okay. So, yeah. Okay. And Rob? Same here. Grade eight okay. for high school. All right. Excellent. Um, and Rob, in terms of, uh, of your five years of high school experience at Vancouver College, what would you say would be your fondest memory? So there's a lot, but I would say if I had to pick one, it's probably sort of Saturday afternoon football games in the fall. Um, and that's, that's both being there and playing, but also I, I grew up just down Hudson Street, actually, um, a short walk from, from O'Hagan Field. And my dad used to take us over there from as young as I can remember, so four or five, six years old, and, and watching the Irish play. So um, and hearing the whistle even from my front yard uh, down the street is, is is a memory that comes to mind. Awesome. And uh, Sadil, yourself, do you have a, a a fondest memory in mind from your experience at Vancouver College? Yeah, I think uh, you know just you know playing ball um, obviously was a big part. Uh, you know, basketball was a big part of my life. Um, you know, particularly in high school, and so, um, you know, just hanging out with uh, the fellows from the team and, um, you know, just uh, just the camaraderie and all and all that and everything associated with basketball is pretty, you know, pretty great memories. Cool. So in that respect, do you do you guys have a, a favorite uh, a teacher or a coach that uh, that you could single out? Uh, Sunil, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, I think. Favorite teacher? I liked uh, I liked Mark Schmiegel a lot. Um, I know uh, I only really had him for a couple classes in in grade nine, I think. Uh, but he was uh, he was a good guy, um, and I you know I, I liked him, and he was uh, he was pretty funny uh, in terms of coaches. Um, you know, Vito Pasquale uh, was was definitely my favorite. Um, you know, I liked I liked Vito a lot, and uh, he was also. Um, you know, just kind of real and, and uh, spent a lot of time with them. So yeah, I think those two, those two stick out in my mind. Excellent. And uh, Rob, yourself, do you have uh, any specific uh, teacher or coaches that, uh, that stick in your mind of your experience at the school? Cert yeah, certainly. I mean, I think to pick up on Sunil's point, as a student athlete, I probably over-indexed to coaches and, and certainly coaches that did double time in the classroom. So Mr. P definitely stands out. Um, but also on the basketball side, Mr. Corbett as well. He taught me grade 12 math as well as coaching me through, through basketball. So uh, 
great relationship there on the football side, Mr. Howie and, and certainly Mr. Burnett, who's still there. If I had to keep it purely to academics and I had to pick one, I'd probably say Brother Newman, um, who's obviously no longer with us, but um, also Mr. Frere taught me calculus. And then English, Mr. Davenport and uh, Mrs. Field, for sure, um, were, were instrumental in my, call it academic <laughs> development as opposed to athletic. Okay, great. Um, so kind of maybe switching gears a little bit in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, both of you have uh, lived uh, in several cities around the world and obviously um, being an expat and being far away from home takes a, a certain amount of, let's say, courage and a sense of adventure. So I'm curious if, uh, you know, if there's any classes or teachers or any experiences at the school that you think stoked that, uh, let's say, it's a sense of adventure. Rob, maybe start with you. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, I guess I might bucket it into academic and sports again. I think on the sports side, I think traveling as, as uh, an athlete at BC was, was really cool, whether it's basketball or football, but particularly like cross-border trips. In my grade 11 year, we went down to San Diego and played football down there against the big 4A California school. And I, I thought at that age, it was pretty cool to get to travel to play sports. And that stuck with me as a longer-term ambition, which, which I was lucky enough to have turn out. And then more formative probably on, on the academic or leadership side, my grad year coincided with the year 2000, which was also a jubilee year for the Catholic Church. And so the Pope at the time called a World Youth Day in Rome, and uh, the Christian Brothers put together a big delegation. They sent um, representatives from Christian Brothers schools from all over the sort of English-speaking world. So I was selected amongst a group of six guys from BC in my year who went over to Dublin for a leadership conference with all those Christian brothers delegates from, you know, as far away as Tanzania, Australia, et cetera. And then the whole group of us went to Rome for, for the World Youth Days and, and the sort of papal Jubilee Mass, which was an incredible adventure and, and um, probably a little bit off-piste or certainly off-curriculum, you know, having a few fun all-nighters in Rome at the end of that experience with those other five guys was um, definitely you know, you watch the sunrise over Rome after, a, you know, extracurricular activities um, when you're 17 or 18 out for the night was, uh, you know, stoked in me a sense of adventure for sure. Very interesting. So, Neil, do you, uh, do you have an uh, experience that you could share in that light? Yeah, um, I don't know. I think you know, living abroad, you know, never really traveled much as a kid and, you know, during our high school years, aside from, you know, obviously, you know, I think one trip that, uh, and I don't know if it led to, you know, decisions to live abroad, which, which encompass a bunch of different things. Um, but, you know, we, 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 in my grade 11 year, we got to travel with the basketball team to Houston. I think Mr. Singara was on that trip as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that was kind of the first time traveling really without family and just kind of being with your buddies and, um, you know, hanging out and, I don't know, going to Hooters twice in one day, maybe, maybe, but, um, you know, I think, <laughs> I, you know, I think, you know, really, I, I you know, I, I think living abroad is, is a decision that encompasses not just whether you like to kind of be in different, you know, live in a different city, but it's, you know, your sense of adventure and, and exploring new things. And that came, I think, a little bit later in life, probably for me, um, you know, I think um, high school had a little bit to do with it, but uh, I think that side really took hold. You know, I think when I moved to London, for a year to do my master's is when I got to see, and I'd never really been to Europe before. 
um, got to see life over there and, and wanting to, you know, living in a very, very cosmopolitan city um, like London um, uh, for that time, you know, made me want to, uh, you know, check out, um, you know, uh, the rest of the world. Um, and that's how I kind of made decision after decision to land um, in a place like Dubai. Awesome. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, both of you have touched a couple times on, uh, on your athletic experience at, uh, in, uh, in high school. You were both very, um, very successful athletes at the school. Uh, you know, in the context today, we're, we're discussing both um, kind of an expat experience and, and also where you guys have landed in venture capital. Um, you know, venture capital, um, by virtue, requires a you know, very high, high risk tolerance um, a lot of patience and teamwork. So I'm curious if, um, you know, there were lessons that you guys learned, be it on the court or the field or uh, the track, um, that you that you 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 use in your everyday life, uh, where you guys are at right now, Sunil. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think um, you know, I certainly didn't have uh, the level the level of success that Rob had post high school in terms of athletics. So. Um, you know, you, you, you learn a bunch of stuff um, when you're playing in team sports when you're younger um, that you, you, you kind of don't really think about in terms of skills that you're building for, for something that will last the rest of your life. And then you, you got to go to university and then you start working and now, you know, running a business. And so you pick, you pick those things back up and they kind of come naturally to you. Um, and you, 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 don't, you don't even realize like where you actually pick that up. But, you know, I think if there was kind of a couple of things that I think stood out from, from playing sports um, at college was um, I think, you know, teamwork obviously, but not just like working with a team, but actually how to manage different personalities um, and characters, which comes out in business a lot. I'm sure Rob can attest to that, you know, in any organization um, you've got different types of folks and, and you know, working and, and sort of playing team sports helps you manage uh, those personalities, I think a little bit better. And I also think, you know, just resilience and like the up and down of a game or the up and down of a season, you know, things can, can, go, can go bad and, and come back um, and keep doing that, um, you know, oftentimes over, you know, many times over the course of a game or a season. Um, and you, you learn to pick, you know, you learn to deal with the highs and the lows and, and how that manifests itself over, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years and as, as we move through our career. So I think, um, you know, I think those are, those are two of the things that, uh, that I think stand out in terms of uh, experiences from sports that I, I, you know, I was able to translate in, in, into a business career. Interesting. And Rob, as, as we heard earlier, um, you were, uh, you had the, uh, the, the pleasure of, of playing on a, uh, on a championship CFL team, obviously very heightened level of, of, uh, of intensity and professionalism there. Um, were there aspects that, uh, that you took out of that experience that you apply in your everyday life? Yeah, I think for sure. Um, but despite the level increasing, I don't think the fundamental lessons changed much. I think Sunil's points are spot on when it comes to just knowing how to be a good teammate and learning intrinsically how to rely on others to win and also step up and play your role when it's, when it's your turn when it's when it's your turn to perform so that the team can win those are sort of constants across all team building and sort of high performance uh, organizations like regardless of setting even if it's in sports um, and i think that's that's true universally and i think that equanimity as well that, that you 
cultivate as a as an athlete learning to deal with you know even getting beat on a certain play and coming back the next or losing a game and coming back the next or having a bad season and coming back the next uh is is all something that that builds character and resilience but i think maybe to shift the perspective a little bit i, I also think it it offers some lessons to uh through the investor lens so when you think of of backing concepts backing teams uh and sort of like picking picking winners i think there's a couple things that stand out from some of the early fundamentals uh drilled into us at pc i can think of many a defensive drill in basketball where we had to just sit in a defensive stance for like what seemed like 25 minutes uh, and that's the notion of just perfect practice makes perfect so we used to a, a theme that resonated throughout my time at bc playing in all sports was that we practiced harder harder than we actually had to play most of the time against most teams that we we competed against and i think that's true you mentioned venture capitalists or early stage investors having a huge risk tolerance i think that's true in some levels because the magnitude of the bets they take are big and the probabilities are low but i also find early stage investors are actually some of the most risk averse um people i've met uh, uh, all in all and it's just that they're incredibly calculated or practiced in the risks that they do take so I think that idea of preparing diligently and sort of practicing harder than you have to play translates a lot into into an investment process and investment decision making. And then the other is probably just something learned by playing myself um, and, and realizing my own limitations as an athlete, but also watching others excel um, for reasons that were beyond my grasp. It's just that there's some things you just can't coach and, and there's an expression, you know, you can't coach speed. And I would add, you can't coach work ethic or attitude. And those are some things that are just intrinsic in, in athletes. And I think you you find that in people you work with and particularly people you invest in. Um, and so I tend to gravitate towards those people that are already naturally fast and already naturally hard workers, um, because more often than not, you're not gonna be able to influence those behaviors over time. So it's good to start with people that, um, you know, to build a game-changing organization, you gotta be able to run the 100 meter sub 10. And you're not going to take like a 12 or 13 second 100 meter guy and, you know, through some brilliant investment or intervention, speed them up by three seconds. So you look for that like natural talent, I guess, by default. And that's something I guess I learned opposite in sport because I realized very quickly at the CFL level, I wasn't that guy. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, I couldn't coach or work my speed in, into anything greater. So I had to sort of stick with, with what I could do. But on the investing side, um, yeah, looking for those naturally brilliant guys that are already quick um, is really helpful. Interesting. So after after having the opportunity of uh, of playing uh, with the quickest and some of the best out there on the field, um, you then went to one of the quickest and fastest and best business schools in the world. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, working with elite uh, elite um, individuals on say another level uh, and then from there you went directly to Johannesburg so maybe in terms of a segue was it something that you saw in your studies or something that uh, maybe an experience you had or or an interest or what was it that took you from grad school uh, to Johannesburg hmm. well I think it was a desire to get into a few things I guess Something that's really pertinent to my time at BC is is sort of one of the themes that I've that's informed all my career choices, which is one of paying privilege forward. So I think 
the notion of sort of servant leadership that you're exposed to at Vancouver College and particularly the sort of role model in, in Christ um, in particular is, is, you know, one of using what uh, gifts you've, you've got to, to the greatest possible benefit. And so that's something that's always informed my choices. And so that's what drew me to sort of social enterprise and, and impact investing was to use some, you know, more hardcore corporate skills to try to make people's lives better. And, and that altruism or sort of sense of purpose beyond myself has been something that um, resonated throughout sort of my choice to go to my MBA and then what I did after. And the other is I'm always fascinated by um, not just sort of paying privilege forward, but building bridges. I love helping people from other parts of the world or from different cultures or who speak different languages see the value that's on the other side of sort of a wall that often keeps people separated. So I was interested in this idea of connecting different different pockets of, of value and, and different perspectives that people might have. Um, and then the last is just exploring frontiers. I, the why I love startups um, is a little bit like why I love playing sports or, or getting out in the outdoors is you are trying to like sort of blaze a trail commercially that no one's ever been able to figure out before. So um, all those themes sort of informed myself wanting to do something um, sort of from an impact perspective and uncharted territory after B-School. So the question was what, I guess. And, and I guess a big decision I made while at business school was that my 30s should be about learning and not earning. And, and that's difficult at a place like HBS because you have a lot of guys punching pretty big tickets uh, with like pretty high profile jobs leaving. Uh, and doing lots of interesting stuff, um, but that tends to be in pretty com conventional paths. Um, so to go my own way was was a little bit of a challenge, but I really tried to focus for the two years I was at school on what I wanted to learn rather than how much I could earn. And, and those three questions really were focused on emerging markets, just because I have a personal belief that a lot of the growth in our career, sort of call it in the next 20 to 40 years, is going to be in emerging markets. And I was particularly drawn to Africa because feel like it has the potential to be like Asia was from sort of 1970 to now. Um, Africa has a good chance of, of being something similar over the course of our career. So I wanted to focus in emerging markets. I felt like more was happening. Uh, it was more vibrant, more full of opportunity. A lot of volatility too. We'll probably touch on that later, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but a lot of um, appetite. And then also just social enterprise or impact investing. I think there's no household names that uh, have made exceedingly huge impact at high profit to the point where they've become a, a household name. There's a lot, like when you think of tech stock, you think of Apple. When you think of an industrial stock, you think of GE or whatever. Um, but when you think of someone who's proven this like sort of new, more inclusive form of capitalism and, and sort of capitalism 2.0 um, that might address, uh, address the sort of rampant inequality that's building in the world, there's no household name when you think of someone who's sort of like done really, really well uh, commercially by delivering impact either to society or to the environment at scale. There's a lot of corporations today are trying to backfill that. They're trying to like refit or retrofit their purpose to sort of creating impact, but there's no one who's really set off with like a mission first orientation and then, and then made a really profitable business model on top of that. So that was a frontier I wanted to explore and learn more about. And then the last is just um, a base of the pyramid markets, which is a, an incredibly, um, patronizing term, but it's what 
sort of poor people in poor markets or poor countries are referred to in the literature. So um, I was interested in business models that could serve that last mile of, of the economy and society. So people in sort of slum or township communities or rural communities or without sort of conventional access to ideas, to capital, to services, to products, um, because it represents both a compelling impact opportunity, but then on the flip side, uh, an incredible unmet commercial opportunity. So those three things really, emerging markets, social enterprise, and, and sort of last mile product service and like idea delivery was, was of interest to me. And so when I had an opportunity to join up with a South African partner to build a micro business incubator, helping entrepreneurs and townships start and scale their businesses. And on the back of that, we built a township venture fund, which evolved into um, a sort of an impact private equity fund down here in South Africa. Um, it wasn't any of those things at the time, but when I, when I had the um, opportunity to get involved in that, to me, it hit all of those criteria in one shot. And so I, uh, bought a plane ticket to Joburg for a weekend to meet the guy who would end up becoming my business partner. We hit it off. Um, this was two weeks before graduating. I flew back to Boston, graduated, and then threw my stuff in a duffel bag and was back a week later. Um, and that was eight years ago. So uh, that's, that's the story. Awesome. And uh, so Sunil, you had quite a different experience. You mentioned earlier that uh, you'd spent some time in London, and then I believe you were in Toronto for a while after that. Um, and then subsequently Abu Dhabi and now Dubai, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so can you tell us how and why uh, you ended up where you're at? Sure. Um, you know, I'd always wanted, uh, you know, I think after, uh, after university and, and law school, I'd always had an itch to, uh, to, to think about, um, you know, after having, you know, a few years before that lived in London for a while and, and you know, in a new place and super cosmopolitan had always thought I'd like to go back um, to uh, a similar type of place or a place where I can have um, connectivity to other markets. And, and, and much like Rob, um, you know, very, very fascinated with emerging markets. Um, you know, just the idea of, 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 of building um, in different places of the world that were relatively untouched and, you know, emerging markets, is a, uh, you know, a fairly grandiose term and, and there's, you know, different kind of verticals within that. But, um, you know, looking for a place where I could do that, work in emerging markets, live in a place that's cosmopolitan, uh, obviously, you know, nice lifestyle would be great as well. And so, you know, wanted to, you know, was thinking about, um, you know, I was thinking about places like Singapore, like Hong Kong. Um, uh, and, 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 and Dubai, of course, uh, ultimately settled on moving to Dubai um, just because, um, you know, Dubai is unique in that it's, it's literally from a, ge you know, from a geography standpoint in the center of the world um, and, you know, four to six hours away from, um, you know, some of the biggest uh, emerging market um, financial centers uh, globally. And so just liked um, the opportunity to access opportunity, other opportunities in different places while still living in a place that felt uh, comfortable to me. Um, and so, you know, came out here in 2011, um, started as a lawyer working for Alan Overy doing corporate finance, um, private equity, then joined Abu Dhabi Investment Council uh, two or three years later, um, which is one of the biggest, you know, sovereign law funds in the world, had started to do some angel investing on the VC side personally, um, but then, you know, was, was, was quite lucky working at a place like Attic 
and having access. Um, you know, we were LPs or investors in, in all of the biggest funds in the world, you know, Sequoia and Dreesen, Matrix, you know, you name it, we were essentially investors. So I was able to plug into those networks, um, you know, in, in a way that most people in the region couldn't, um, you know, not living in San Francisco or the Bay Area. Um, and then, you know, really the, the, the excitement um, and the drive around venture capital started to build. And um, four and a half years late, four and a half year later, um, you know, spun out, um, joined three of my co-founders and started uh, our firm VentureSuk here, um, which is now, uh, you know, an early stage VC manager um, focused, you know, we have a, a large part of our portfolios in the US, but also have invested um, in places um, like, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, India, Asia, um, and, you know, LATAM. And so, you know, really, really focused on emerging markets for many of the reasons Rob mentioned, but that, you know, that was a driving force and, and, and you know, obviously pre-COVID, you know, and, and, and you know, not, not including the travel, the, the travel restrictions and whatnot, was able to fly to a lot of these places very quickly. Like, you know, before this, I'd be in India, you know, once a month, um, fly to, uh, fly to places like Kenya, um, fairly regularly as well and, and, you know, kind of jump around. And so um, Dubai was, re was really, really appealing um, to me from that standpoint. Um, plus just, you know, in, in my view, at least, um, you know, a fairly, a fairly cool place to live. Okay. So you, um, you know, both of you guys are in uh, emerging markets, MENA, Africa uh, space. Um, curious in that the, you know, the business models that you guys are seeing succeed um, in these markets, whether or not it's, um, you know, say copycats or, uh, or highly influenced by, by business models and startups that you see that are winning in uh, more traditional innovation centers like Silicon Valley or Beijing or London or Tel Aviv or something, or is it more, um, are you seeing kind of a homegrown um, innovation or, or class of say entrepreneurs from that are that are starting things from scratch uh, specific for uh, for the region maybe Sunil you can you can touch on that sure um, I think it really depends on the emerging market so you know I and, and, and our firm are, are, are fairly active in, in India which is obviously a massive country with a fairly large economy and so you know places like India like China um, certain markets in LATAM and, and, and of course you know places in Africa as well, depending on the country, um, are large enough to have local problems um, that really copycats don't, uh, don't necessarily work without a lo localized solution. So, um, you know, we've seen it pr predominantly in larger markets like India where, um, you know, copycats of course work, but they have to be localized. But I think obviously you've got organic entrepreneurs um, that are, you know, and, and you've got your own ecosystem. So a place like Bangalore um, or, or Beijing um, or, uh, you know, other places, um, you know, are, are, are just as active and vibrant um, as, you know, or getting close to what a Silicon Valley um, ecosystem would look like. And so, um, you know, obviously, you know, anyone who says, oh, copycats don't work is lying in VC because a lot of them have worked everywhere else. Um, but they always, in my view, the good ones have to have to be localized. Um, and you've got, you know, that's where like local founders come into, you know, you don't usually see a you don't usually see a transplant of someone who's got no experience in a particular market, simply just picking up, leaving and being an entrepreneur, not really understanding that market really well or having a local partner um, on the entrepreneur side, not on the investor side. And so, um, you know, to, to my mind, um, everything has got to be customized. And so, um, you know, and you, you, you see it all, you know, we're, we're a perfect example here in the Middle East. You have Uber that 
that was here. Um, but you, you know, really six months before that, we had a local competitor called Kareem, um, which started and really um, most people at the time, you know, were like, oh, they'll never be able to compete against Uber. Um, you know, and they ultimately started delivering localized services that Uber didn't even think of because they're in, you know, 50 other markets. Um, and, you know, ultimately essentially forced Uber to buy them, um, you know, for a couple billion dollars, um, you know, last year. And so, um, you know, the local, the local story in emerging markets works, uh, particularly on consumer businesses. Um, I find B2B businesses can, can, you know, move across borders fairly fast. Um, but B2, you know, consumer businesses, it's difficult from a regulatory standpoint, from a, you know, product market fit and understanding your customer uh, perspective as well. And so, um, you know, we're, we're big fans of, 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 of local entrepreneurs that, that might've gone to great schools and spent some time in San Francisco or spent some time in other markets. But, um, you know, you, you, you take, um, you know, you take kids from, uh, you know, a place like Bangalore and India and they go to IIT and, you know, they're, they're just as sharp and they're just as capable um, and they're building local solutions for local problems, which is where we really focus on. Okay, very interesting. And, and Rob, sitting in uh, in Johannesburg, uh, also kind of a regional center for for uh, Southern Africa, certainly. Um, hmm. Would you say uh, you're you're having a similar experience, or you're seeing a similar experience? Obviously, uh, within your context and being slightly different, more on the social impact investing. Uh, maybe focus on that. Is it? models that are homegrown in, in, in that specific space or is it, uh, is it things that you're, are you seeing entrepreneurs bringing ideas from abroad? Yeah, so I think it's both. To Sunil's point, I think that there's no question the sort of copy paste into another geography works uh, with some localized tweaking. Um, so that idea arbitrage is, is alive and well over here. It's, it's happening all the time. I think though the more interesting stuff is the, the local ideas that are being developed and, and commercialized in, in big local markets. But I think if I were to add one thing that's that's a nuance that has got me pretty excited is also the potential for emerging markets to do what's called like reverse innovation, or that's in effect where it, they create such a compelling idea that, it, that they get then copy pasted into developed markets. So that's like where, for example, an Africa FinTech solution like mobile payments and like currency through cell phones and SMSs um, or WhatsApp currency, makes North American banking infrastructure look like it's from the 1970s, right? So, you know, by, like a funny anecdote, um, I had a check that my dad needed to deposit for me in Vancouver, like last month. And living in Africa now for 10 years, like I haven't touched cash in in six or seven years, you know, just because banking here is, is so much ahead because of the innovation it had to do locally, it had to get around cash because people couldn't get it. There was no ATM infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So you have huge startups here um, that have really changed the game in financial services as, as one sort of vertical example. But in time, I actually envision, ironically, there will be entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley that say, you know what, like U.S. financial services are archaic. Why don't we copy paste what they did in Africa and bring it back to the U.S.? So I think, you know, that's just one random anecdote. But um, that's almost like your first idea in reverse, right? So it's like guys are copy pasting stuff from North America to here. They're developing their own stuff, but then some of that stuff that's been developed here will actually leapfrog what's back home. Interesting. Um, okay, so uh, maybe just we're looking at the time here. We'll kind of wrap up in terms of uh, of, of work experience a little bit. So uh, maybe something we could have a little bit more fun with. Uh, 
it will start with you, Rob. So uh, in your experience, like it's, it doesn't just have to be uh, recently in, the, in your past eight years in Johannesburg, it could have been in your previous life back in Canada and uh, could have been at B school. Uh, what was the worst business plan pitch or that you've ever experienced? So honestly, I have to say there's too many to count. And unfortunately, it's because of my experience running um, the micro incubator that I mentioned, working with township entrepreneurs. For context, we worked with 3,000 entrepreneurs over about five years. Um, but that 3,000 came from a little over 100,000 applicants. So we saw, and, and by the way, working with entrepreneurs who, you know, may have not got through high school or, or you know, there's just delivery of education in, in all these communities is, is really spotty at best. You have teachers that didn't even finish high school themselves that don't show up, et cetera. Um, lights that aren't on, power that doesn't work, no connectivity, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, people are sort of uh, a function of their own circumstances oftentimes. But some of the ideas there were not just bad, they were actually, you know, disheartening um, because of how, you know, just sort of unsound the concepts were. Um, it was almost more sad and difficult to listen to then it was like funny um and you know like moronic you know kind of like you might laugh someone off um dragon's den or shark tank or whatever um it's different when you're exposed to tens of thousands of people that couldn't do any better despite best efforts okay yeah it's i i think um you know a lot of people maybe their view of uh of, of venture capital might be a little bit tainted by the dragons and and uh, and the way that things are that, you know that things are kind of glorified in that respect. Um, maybe over to you, Sunil. In in terms of maybe flip the script on that. And um, has there have you ever had a you know a, a pitch or some or an opportunity presented to you? And again, this doesn't necessarily have to be within the context of venture souk um, that you missed out on that you. You know, it's always in the back. It's the one that got away that you uh, you wish that you had, had had got to participate in for one reason or the other. Yeah, sure. No, uh, I, you know, the company I mentioned before, Kareem. Um, you know, we didn't get we didn't get I don't think a good enough look at it because we were just starting our firm around that time. So it, you know, kind of very very much passed through um, you know our hands. Um, you know, I feel like if we had started our company three six months before that. Um, you know, we would have had a, a legitimate shot at getting in very, very early into that deal. Um, but, you know, just through timing and also really, you know, the, you know, what I was saying, what I was talking about before is that, you know, that's where that belief in local entrepreneurs and, and with local solutions for local problems came. It's like, you know, everyone and this, you know, that really, you know, was part of how we, how we formed our very, very quick judgment on that. I wish we had more time, um, but was like, oh, these guys will never be able to compete with, you know, these guys competing against the best founders in the world they'll never compete against uber how's that going to work um and just kind of almost being a little dismissive of the opportunity not believing in you know guys on the ground super well educated as well um that you know made a go of it and and also came up with with really a customized solution that uber just never even thought about in, in a lot of different um ways they delivered their business so um you know that's one that i you know i wish we could do again and, and have obviously uh you know, another crack at it, you know, timing just didn't work out really well for us, but that, that definitely, you know, sticks to my mind, but it also, you know, turning it into positive forms, our thesis around how we look at businesses now, um, which hopefully will, you know, pay off. Okay. Well, interesting. And, you know, I know, um, 
we're going to have, I, I believe, one of the classes at uh, at Vancouver College. Um, fault, I don't know if they're participating today, but uh, are certainly going to be watching the video. Uh, I think that's a good lesson for them to know that uh, you know, if you're if you're thinking about being an entrepreneur or tackling a problem, that uh, you know, if there's big incumbents in the space or existing companies, um, that's not necessarily uh, a roadblock to to creating something that uh, that is that is lasting and valuable. Um, okay, uh, I think we're getting a little bit tight on time. I'm just curious from you know my own experience and uh, and experiences of, of friends and family that have been expats. Um, for people that are interested in in the experience of going and living abroad, it's uh, uh, certainly we've touched on the um, you know the excitement of kind of the sense of adventure and also there's you know certainly um, work opportunities that you wouldn't see say in Vancouver. Um, but that's also taxing on your on your family and your personal relationships. So I, I, I know uh, I know you guys have have young families and I'm curious, um, you know, has it been difficult and, and do you see challenges in terms of, of raising a family uh, in in Johannesburg or Dubai? Maybe Rob will start with you. Yeah, I think so. There's unquestionably challenges. I'd say there's there's pros on on one level. I mean, here as a random example, the cost of childcare is exceedingly low compared compared to Vancouver. So that's great. You know, we get an incredible nanny for a fraction of the price um, that you'd have to pay in Vancouver. That's getting like deeply practical for any parents on the call. You probably <laughs> probably appreciate it. You can imagine a 17 year old VC student not caring much about that dynamic, but um, there's also, you know, what adventure, I mean, what you do on a, a weekend trip, you take your kids on safari, like out, you know, two hour drive away, it's like lions. So, you know, that's cool. Um, but I'd say there's, there's a lot of cons. I mean, South Africa is not a particularly safe country from, from a violent crime perspective. Um, and it's also a dramatically unequal country and, and still, deeply racist on structural grounds. There's still a lot of like segregated living, segregated transport, um, you know, despite being a democratic non-racial country now, there's still just a lot of that stuff left over from the apartheid era. So, so I, I always lose a bit of sleep around, you know, what's it like for a toddler or a young child just by osmosis downloading that as normal compared to, compared to say an upbringing in Vancouver. So it's something that, that wears on my mind for sure. Okay, Sunil, um, being in uh, being in Dubai, um, I'm, I'm curious. Actually, maybe reframe the question a little bit. Both of you guys made comments about some of the participants on this call being able to figure out Zoom, etc. Uh, maybe uh, maybe it's you know difficult staying in touch and 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 uh, getting in touch with people. Let's say, um, Sunil, were your when you made the decision to uh, to move abroad, um, was did you find that it was supported by your friends and family out here, or were people questioning your decision, or was it um, was it uh, was it was it easy to make from that kind of social and family standpoint? Yeah, it was um, I, I was living in Toronto at the time, and so and my my folks are, are in Vancouver, so I was already you know living you know in a different city than them. Um, you know, I think. At the time, I think the problem, you know, with the Middle East is always the stigma um, and, and folks not really knowing what kind of life is for, obviously we're, you know, 
you know, a few hours away um, from, from, from some, some hot spots, definitely. But, um, you know, there was a lot of questions because of a lack of, uh, a, a lack of understanding of what Dubai is compared to other places in the region may not have as good of a reputation. And so I think there was a little, there was a little, um, you know, concern about that. But I think once people definitely came and visited, once my folks came to visit, once my friends came to visit Dubai, you know, most of them wanted to move here. Um, so, um, particularly when you're coming here in January, February, um, where it's 20. <laughs> so, um, you know, like, so I, I think, um, no, it was, it was, you know, I think it was, you know, and a lot of my, a lot of my family in particular knew that, you know, I really wanted to kind of go abroad and live in an emerging market, um, and, and, you know, see that part of the world. And so I think they, they understood, um, for the most part, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the main challenges of living, you know, living out here is, is, is just, you are very far, you know, you're far away from, from close family. And so, um, particularly now in a time like COVID where, you know, before all of this, you know, that you, you can hop on a flight and we travel a lot. Um, you know, we're in North America, um, or at least I am for work. And then I always add, you know, a trip up to see my folks and my brother in Toronto. Um, you know, I'm in North America 10, 11 times a year, um, at least. And so now with this kind of with travel restrictions and everything, knowing you can't go see them, even though you might not have taken that trip necessarily, I think weighs on you a little bit, um, you know, particularly with, 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 with older parents and all this going on. So, but, you know, notwithstanding that, I, I, I think it's, it was generally pretty well accepted amongst, uh, amongst my friends and family. Okay, so you touched a little bit, obviously, with you know the world we're living in now is uh, is dominated by uh, by by COVID nineteen. Um, I know that uh, we, my firm we have colleagues in South Africa, and it's been a pretty aggressive <coughs> lockdown in uh, in South Africa. Um, Rob, curious just to 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 understand a little bit about kind of what your quarantine experience was like or is like, I should say. Um, yeah. And nice correction. Yeah, and uh, and maybe in that context, um, has the kind of quarantine and the experience uh, under uh, COVID nineteen uh, living in Johannesburg kind of changed your your thoughts about living abroad, and or, you know, are you reconsidering maybe uh, coming back to Canada or, or somewhere else? Mm. I don't think COVID in particular has has forced a, ch a change of mind. I think. Uh, you know, it, it truly is a global pandemic, and so in that sense, you kind of see it everywhere, and 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 just hunker down where you are. So, it, that being said, I have been reevaluating where I'm living for for a bunch of other reasons beyond COVID. Uh, in fact, I was back in Vancouver in in September last year, and actually had coffee with Steve talking about some of those other reasons, even pre pre COVID nineteen. So, not necessarily changing my mind in that respect. But yeah, lockdown here has been pretty heavy. The government got way ahead of it and, and instituted a pretty heavy-handed lockdown here, but understandable given the situation with um, the high prevalence of comorbidity here. There's there's still super, super high prevalence of HIV, tuberculosis. Um, and then because the uh, population is still so um, poor and, and sort of unequal uh, in, in large part, there's just um, you know, prevalence of like malnutrition, uh, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. So there's so many other things that um, COVID could just be a spark for that the government, um, and then there's also just transport nodes are extra clogged because there isn't much infrastructure for public transport and uh, people also stay, you imagine like a family of eight or 12 sleeping in one, in a one room shack 
the idea of social distance, distancing as it's conceived of over, over at home in Canada is a bit laughable. So um, there's just so many sort of structural uh, and circumstantial factors here that made the government um, be pretty strict. So it's been full. I've been over 60 days locked down in the house um, to get out for, for groceries and sort of medicine. And, and, you know, my wife can leave to go see uh, our gynecologist to get her scans done. Uh, but that's it. Um, we we eased lockdown slightly at the beginning of May. We can go out for a walk or leave the house to ride your bike between six and nine in the morning. Um, but, but that's, uh, you know, it, it, you're in a bad spot when that feels like freedom. Um, so it's, it's, it's still no sign of letting up here. Um, so it's, it's pretty intense. <laughs> well, um, yeah, good luck with that and stay strong. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty crazy situation down there from what I've understood. Um, all right. Well, we're uh, we're running out of time pretty quickly, so uh, I think we're going to put it. Uh, we got some questions from the audience that Steve will will put to you guys now. Thanks for your time, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank it's been you. great. I've got a handful of questions. They are a little bit all over the map, as you can imagine, because people are typing them in as you're talking about stuff from 20 minutes ago. Um, and I'll do a couple rapid fire ones. So uh, here's a, here's a quick one for both of you. Do you guys see any Vancouver College alumni in Johannesburg or Dubai, like hang out with anybody that also is there? Yeah, we, uh, we hang out with, uh, with, oh, with, with Rogers a lot. I see Mr. Rogers is, the, uh, on, uh, <laughs> is, all, is, is on the chat as well. Actually, uh, Mr. Rogers is actually at my house for Christmas about you know, five months ago. So <laughs> here to um, so yeah, we see uh, we 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 hang out with the Rogers uh, a lot. Nice. How about you, Rob? Is there anybody over there? Yeah. No, nothing on my side. No one's down here. No. Okay. Um, next one is I, uh, I settle for WhatsApp banter. <laughs> cool. Next one uh, on both fronts. Do you guys speak any of the local languages? Have you had to learn any of it? Here we go, uh, Rob first. Yeah, I've picked up a little um, basic Zulu um, conversational pleasantries and stuff. Uh, I I have not picked up much Arabic. You know, Dubai, you can, it's pretty much English. Yeah, you know, English um, is, is pretty dominant here, particularly everywhere, really. You know, uh, I think a lot of people forget, you know, Dubai is about 85% expats uh, and 15% locals. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people from a lot of different places here. So, Everyone tends to generally gravitate towards English, so um, haven't haven't felt like I've needed to, but uh, it's probably something I should have should have done. Didn't know I was going to be here this long. <laughs> How it always works. Um, here's another question: Sean Martinez asked, I think, uh, would you come to back to Vancouver? Um, when do you think you would come back? Maybe start with you, Sunil. Yeah, if I could ever afford a house there, probably. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Vancouver's uh, you know, Vancouver's. <laughs> Should have invested in Kareem. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, no, uh, no, I haven't thought. You know, obviously Vancouver's home. Uh, you know, I was born and raised there, but uh, you know, we're pretty we're pretty happy here in Dubai, um, particularly given you know the business which 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 we run from here. So no immediate plans, but you never know. Cool. What about you, Rob? Are you there for a while? Any Vancouver plans ever? Um, yeah, I mean, as you know, uh, in a lot more detail, that, that's a loaded question and been thinking about it quite a bit lately. Um, I think realistically, not Joburg forever, probably got like two to max three years left here. Uh, and then it'll be something 
closer to home, but probably not all the way back to Canada, looking at uh, London primarily. So um, my, my wife's from Cape Town, from down here. So um, London is, is a, I know it sounds crazy as a middle ground because it's still a sort of 10 or 11 hour flight each way, but um, it would be a nice middle ground for both both families. Cool. Um, Marco Goko asked, uh, how has the COVID affected the venture capital sector investor appetite? Is there, what do you guys think about the post-COVID new economy? Maybe Rob, Rob go first. Uh, sure. I think in a different way, in different ways and sort of different sectors, I think in general, there is some, some hesitation and sort of reticence to cut checks right now, but also the nature of VC is that they're very sort of medium and long-term bets. So, so guys are trying to think beyond it, but in that sense, the world is a little uncertain. So I, I would say, um, where where things are actively taking off and still very very busy is where businesses um actually respond well to covid i take that soundbite in, in in context but there are some businesses that are that are sort of not only resilient but scale in this in this uh, new world and so so those businesses are receiving a lot of attention as hot and sort of active as ever um there's other businesses that are immune to it or, or sort of resilient to its effects and sort of are clipping along anyway uh, but then businesses, you know, that are, you know, if you're, if you're looking to like launch a new hotel chain, you're going to struggle. Yeah, probably a bad idea. Um, <laughs> all right. So just in context of time here, I think we can do one more. Um, but before I do that, I, I'm going to mention, um, we do have a couple of these webinars coming up. So the next one is next week with Mike Parker, who's a VC grad of 89, Silicon Valley guy. And then after that, a week after that is Dax Da Silva, the founder of Lightspeed Public Company. Um, so if you guys want to check that out, everybody that's registered will get the email about that. But uh, sort of wrapping up with a bit of a message. So the grads of 2020 are having a bit of a bit of an off year as far as everything uh, and their, their whole grad and everything seems to be very different. Um, I guess the good thing is all of the grads of 2020 from every school everywhere seem to have a bit of a different story. But um, if you guys could give advice to the grads of 2020, what would that, uh, what would that be? Maybe Sunil, we'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. It's kind of something similar. We tell our particular early stage founders. It's that, look, we'll get through this. It's a, it's a small blip in, in what will be an, an otherwise, uh, you know, long life and career. So, um, you know, don't get too down about it. I know it's hard. Uh, you know, you can't go to grad and do a bunch of other stuff when you're, when you're young, 17, 18, but um, you know, this will pass um, and there's a, uh, you know, a whole life out, out there ahead of you. So don't, don't worry about it too much. Nice. Rob, take us home. Advice to 2020. Right. That's a tough one on the spot. I guess, yeah, maybe just to echo Sunil, it, it would be to just try to anticipate the hindsight you'll have five or 10 years from now when, when things have moved on and normalized and lessons have been learned from this thing. Um, you'll be better, stronger, and then, more resilient for it um, in your career and as a person. So try to anticipate what those lessons will be now and take some comfort in them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for doing this. Uh, I'd also like to point out that I thought it was interesting that Aiden's never met Rob till this call and Sunil never met Rob till this call. <laughs> so thank you guys for doing this. I appreciate it. Glad we could make all the time zones work. Thank you for everybody for registering. Um, like I said, the funds are going to go to uh, two VC restaurants, Heirloom and um, 
my gosh, I forgot the other one. Um, Pink Elephant, Ty. Um, anyways, thank you all. And I will, this has been recorded and we will send it out. But uh, yeah, thanks everybody for attending. Thanks, thanks for recording, thanks, Steve. Appreciate yeah, no it. Problem. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Adam. It's all good. See you guys.